everybody. Welcome to another episode of Innovation Crush. Innovation Crush. Actually, wait, you know, I was, I was listening to a couple of shows and I realized that most of the times I, I don't wait for you to do the, the echo. You don't. So, thank you. I, 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 Paul, I actually I even it. gestured to you to to open the stage and the like, floor for you. Like Big Sean, I do it. Like Big Sean, you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of doing it, uh, we have an amazing guest with us today. Say hello, Zeke. Hey. You do go by Z, right? I do. All right. Yeah. Why not? No E E, no J, no. Just one letter. Although sometimes I get Z when I'm in other countries. (laughs) Hey Z, you're like no. (laughs) Or Vegas, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Why just the Z? Well, uh, so I'm Hungarian. My parents are Hungarian, and uh, so my name Christina has a Z in it, and it's just Mm. a lot easier to spell Z than. Christina with a Z in there. Those damn Hungarian spellings. <laughs> um, did you grow up in Hungary or did you grow up no. uh, up here in the coastal United States? I, I grew up in the U.S., but my parents were refugees from Hungary. So a lot of their past stories have had a really big impact on on my life. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. What, what were they refugeeing from? Oh, so they so they left Hungary. Refuge. And, I don't know yeah. how to use the word refugee uh, outside of the word refugee. Right. So they were um, <laughs> they were seeking refuge from ni- 1956. It was an uprising in Hungary against the Soviets, and so they had been under Soviet occupation for a long time. And there were some pretty crazy stories about my father being held at gunpoint, um, barely making it across after this river. The people. Other people in his group were shot. Um, wow. My, my wow. you know, my, my mother and her family basically being able to bring whatever they were wearing. That was it. They maybe put an extra pair of pants on, and that was it. Yeah. Coming to this country, not knowing the language barely, and you know, just not knowing if they'd ever go back to their home country. And so, I think it's a lot of the same DNA that, yeah. that entrepreneurs and innovators have, um, just kind of going off into the unknown. It is like, uh, was it like the muscle memory? But, or ancestral memory, right? right? Like exactly. you just you have this sort of like exploration tent to yourself. Well, yeah. <laughs> you uh, hear those stories. It's hard <laughs> to not appreciate what you have. And Yeah, that's um, amazing. And my parents are, you know, took me on a lot of adventures. So And good food, too. Yeah, okay. Hungarian yeah, food definitely. is amazing. Um, so I'm going to read your Twitter bio um, <laughs> Entrepreneur, engineer, troublemaker, muses on new ideas, startups, innovation, LA adventure. Forbes contributor, council chair at Davos, TEDx, previous at MIT and USC. Um, explain yourself. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was that was like a lot of stuff. That was like three people's lives in one you know one blurb. Um, I guess you said you could say that I'm a very curious person, and so I love to just follow my curiosity and try different things. So yeah, I've definitely I started out as an engineer. Uh, and then started my first company with colleagues out of grad school at MIT and uh, and then went on and was involved in other startups, did a little stint between startups and documentary production. And then uh, my last two startups were, if you want to call them startups, they were innovation centers at universities. So it was actually hmm. – what's kind of neat about that is that I was able to help other people then achieve entrepreneurial success, innovation, right. make an impact in the world. I was at MIT and then most recently at USC. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so how did, like, as I, I get, like, kind of following your curiosity in the moment, you yeah. know, and going from, the, you know, kind of just walk us through the journey as how those things kind of, like, how you blossomed into <laughs> where you are today. Like, you know, um, what was the first thing where really, I, I think, for me, it's kind of like, what was the first thing that sparked your curiosity? And then you go, 
uh, it just becomes a way for you, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, my my parents, I, I think I was lucky in some sense that I was an only child and that my parents were very adventurous. My dad, when I was you know, six months old, he'd go off on treasure hunting trips to uh, different, you know, to South America. Really? And, yeah, and, and of course my mother was not exactly pleased because she wanted to go, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he would say, oh, well, you know, I'm going off to, he would justify it. Well, you need I, to watch the house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, you know, he, he was going because he was getting some finding gold or emeralds, whatever, so that he could put me through college right. one day. Awesome. You know, that kind of so, um, so that was the environment. And then when I was uh, maybe five, uh, we went to Belize, which uh, which was British Honduras at the time. And right. um, he, t- <laughs> my dad, told my mother, you know, good news for Christmas. We're going to the Caribbean. And she, I mean, she's very adventurous, but she thought, right. oh, Caribbean. I'll um, pack the long evening gowns, a steam iron. Next thing you know, fast forward to Christmas Eve, we're in the jungle. Our Jeep has broken down. We're trying to find the lost city of Lubantun or something like that. Right. <laughs> and you know, we're and then we finally make our way to some person's oasis in the middle of the jungle, and we're swimming in this these hot springs with piranhas, you know, but little baby piranhas. Yeah. I mean, just crazy stuff like that. And so that was the the early stages yeah. um, of just the curiosity. And I think a lot of people say, that, "Oh, I don't want to take my kids on a uh, on travel because." I'm going to wait until they're going to remember it. Right. Well, the truth is, I remember things from when I was two and a half years old. Yep. But even if I didn't, those things absolutely set you up for the oh, of rest of your right. values for the rest of your life. Well, not only that, like, I mean, I, I have an eight-year-old, and I, I, even this morning, I was showing her pictures of stuff she had done when you know she was a baby, like yeah. you know, one or younger. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, really? And like, you retell that story, and like, you know, suddenly it's an, ancestral back. memory yeah. again. That's right. and like, oh, I did do that. You know, kind <laughs> right, of. Exactly. Um, so I remember my dad. Um, my, my mom didn't believe that. Actually, remember she, she didn't remember this really. She, I, I remembered before we moved from Boston to DC, and that was before I was three because that's when we moved. So right. I was really young. My dad actually took me onto the roof of the house to just hang out on the roof of the house up this ladder. And I was like, he wouldn't have done that. Well, about eight years later, we find a photograph that she had taken of me and my dad on the roof of the house. <laughs> so the theme I'm getting here is that your mom was kind of just left out of all these experiences. She wanted to be part of it. I know. She knows. She's actually very... I took I took her backpacking for a month in Ecuador. Oh, nice. A, yeah, yeah. So she's really... Uh, she's down with the adventure. I want to be your mom. Yeah, can we go? Okay, yeah. Take me on some of these trips. We'll be your mother. Um, so one of your claims to fame is that um, you are credited with the first TEDx event, yeah. um, which Robert and I thought was the porn version TEDx. <laughs> but uh, apparently, TEDx, we, we, yes, yes. Yeah, we, were, we were wrong. Um, my other joke was Ted Z, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to skip that one. That was my idea, but they said, "Go with us." So, like, how did like how does that happen for you? You know, do you Mm. you just like call pick up the phone, like, "Hey, I got an idea." Well, I think you know, I think it's a combination of um, you know luck of having really good connections and saying, "Hey, let's just make you know propose." You know, let's go talk to Chris Anderson, and so uh, a friend of. Mine uh, colleague had put me in touch, and we had lunch, and uh, we hashed out. A colleague of mine, Elisa, and I went and had lunch with Chris Anderson, and you know, we said that 
TED.com is awesome. We think it's great. Some people think it's crazy that you're putting all the content out there, but we think it's great. You're making it available, but it's not the TED experience. And we'd really like to bring the TED experience to our community. I'm sure that other people have proposed this to you too. Right. But what we're really passionate about is making this a replicable model. So, um, and if it, let's do one, let's do a pilot. And if it fails, we don't have to tell anybody that we tried it. <laughs> we did it, yeah. It's like a deep, but, dark basement. Yeah, and you're like, yeah. we're not telling you where you're going. Just, yeah. uh, just come on. So I think, you know, and Chris had been thinking of a lot of these things too. Chris, I, you know, I have to credit Chris as being this really forward thinker um, in terms of opening things up and sharing things with the world in ways that's very uncomfortable for leaders, right. you know? And, um, you know, and at first he said, I'm really interested but he says, you know, no, we're not quite ready yet. And I thought, ah, he's just letting us down easy. Well, four months later, he calls back. He says, you know what? We're ready. We have the right person on the team to, to lead this, Laura Stein, who's amazing. I mean, she's a really the one who create the program within TED. And so we worked with her to help identify, you know, what would be the licensing model? What would be the standards that, that groups would have to do? So every time that we were trying to make a decision about our event. Normally, if you're licensing something, you want to push the boundaries and you want to get as much as possible. Right. We're thinking, oh my God, well, this is also, we're setting precedent for all the other organizations that may, if this takes off, um, be, uh, you know, that they'll be, uh, you know, having to right. meet these standards. And so we want to make sure mm-hmm. that those standards are high. And so, right. so we were, we were kind of pushing ourselves in both directions. We wanted it, we wanted contr- as much control as possible, and at the same time, we wanted to make sure that, uh, well, we want to make sure this is a really good program. Yeah, no, I mean, especially with something like TED, you have to have some level of like creative freedom and on stage right. and who people can curate and you know. So, so. Well, that's, yeah, that's one of the most brilliant things about TEDx too is that for an organization to um, really let go enough so that the idea can localize and can have that the local champions and uh, the evangelists can take ownership of it right. and shape it to make sense there. So you'll have a TEDx that's in the slums of Kenya where there's literally dirt floor, there's 30 people in the room and a little flip chart or not even that, you know, yeah. and which is a far cry from a TEDx USC, which we did, which is a huge production and 1,200 people and just really super high production yeah, value. Yeah. And, but they're both, they both are a great way of having ideas worth spreading that are contextualized for the environment. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's setting up that, that thread. And, and you mentioned like a four-month gap. Like what, what happens in that four-month gap? You know, because I, I think a lot of our listeners who are entrepreneurs who are building mm-hmm. things or going out and making things happen – um, but sometimes, like, you get discouraged in a four-month gap. Uh-huh. You're like, eh, all right, forget it. Like, you move on to the next thing, and by the time you get that phone call, right. it's it's too late. Right. Um, so what was that process like? Were you in constant communication, or were you just waiting? Um, no, you know, I think that we had a lot of things on our plate. So at the time, I was the vice provost for innovation at USC, and I was running, was the founding director of the USC Stevens Institute for Innovation. And... So we were working with students to try to help them start companies. We were managing the intellectual property for the university. Right. We were doing all sorts of things. So you were so busy. It was just another week. Yeah, so we're going <laughs> to So the, our, our philosophy was about experimentation. So we'd throw out things, see what would stick. And I think part of the challenge is first to come up with crazy ideas. But it's not about coming up with the crazy ideas. It's actually trying them out, figuring out which ones to pursue and executing. Uh, There's a lot of Mm -hmm. emphasis and innovation these days about coming up with new ideas. An idea is just an idea until you execute it. And so you need to figure out what's the best way. It's not just about doing it, but you need to make sure that it's uh, the, the market's ready for it. Your internal 
organization is ready for the idea, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of preparation that needs to happen. So, so that's a lot of the things we're, we're experimenting. Yeah, and and it's just as hard to kill ideas as it is to come up with ideas. It is hard, especially it's hard in a university one. environment. Yeah. Chris kills yeah. a lot of my ideas instantly. <laughs> oh, yes. Other people's ideas. <laughs> but to, to your point, like, how long did it take you to kind of, like, really kind of flesh that out and, like, you know, hone in on that idea and really, like, fine-tune it to the point where it is TEDx, you know? Well, so, so again, I want to be really clear, too, that I don't want to take credit for actually creating the entire well, program, too late. right? No, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it is a, it's an iterative process, and so working right. with Laura... Um, Early, so she started. Let's see. We started talking probably in uh, uh, two, well, it was 2008. So we had the idea with Chris in 2007, that, that and then in the fall in November, he shot us down. No, not really. In, in January. <laughs> no, he let us people down named easy. Chris, huh? <laughs> you see, you see our, our budget for sound effects here. I don't have any buttons. Or... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then let's see. So maybe it was early summer we started talking with Laura, and the event itself was next May. So it was a long process of just talking through what this might look like. Right. We really started putting together the program in September, and uh, again, of course, this was not the only thing that we were working on. Mm-hmm. But it's also there's this gestation period, and I think one of the things that I really enjoy is, and this is what I've realized now. A lot of times you don't realize what you were doing all along until you look back. And you're like, yeah, that's what I was doing all along. I knew exactly yeah. what I was doing, right? But it's about uh, really um, helping empower other people to make an impact and to help identify undiscovered ideas and talent, helping them amplify their ideas. So whether it's helping students start companies or faculty, right. license their technologies to a big company and turn it into a product, or identifying good speakers for TEDx, you're really trying to find really great people and ideas. And so that takes time. That's yeah. just a, mm-hmm. So sometimes it's... Sometimes things it just have to. It's good to do things in parallel, and uh, they they just won't they won't happen overnight. Right. Uh, I usually save this for the end, but I feel inspired. How about that? Um, Whoa. Yeah, I know, right? I've never get moments Am I of inspiring inspiration. you. Yes. <laughs> um, so I want you to finish a phrase for me. Okay. Uh, innovation to me is making impact. How so? So. Like I said before, it's uh, there's a lot of emphasis about innovations, about being new ideas. And mm-hmm. An idea is just in your head, and an invention is just for you. You just have one thing. That's not really going to do right. the world a lot of good. But it's really not until you can have that idea get accepted in the marketplace. And I'm not talking about it. doesn't have to necessarily be a technological gadget. You know, it could be a policy idea. It could be, um, you know, who knows? It could be a whole bunch of different. I mean, just even the you know, concepts like condominium. You know, the, con- the idea of a condominium as opposed to um, just renting an apartment. That right. was an innovation that really enabled people to own a home, even if they couldn't afford a house. Yeah. And so it's not a product. It's not a technological product, but it's it's an important innovation. Yeah. So that um, so I think that it's really about turning that idea into impact. I, I like that. I mean, one of that's kind of one of my personal philosophies, and we've talked about this before. Whereas, like a lot of people look at innovation as the end product, right? They don't look at it as the process, the process. or solving a problem, you know, or even for somebody to, in the condominium example to go like, hmm, how can we make lower costs? Like, you know, was it a sales problem they were trying to solve? Was yeah. it a space, you know, a, a spatial problem they were trying to solve? 
Um, or was it just like an overpopulation problem? And then mm-hmm. you go, okay, cool. Like here's, what if we, you know, made really smaller houses and put them in buildings, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which sounds crazy, but, right. and, and, but that's what happened. Well, there's a fine line between innovative and insane sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, we won't go into that just, just yet. Um, so, uh, when you get involved in a project, right. Um, you know, what are your, clients and or colleagues in for like when they're like yeah. let's call z you right. know what you you come to the table because i feel like a lot of times when you're the ideas and processes person it's yeah. so, sometimes hard to define and i know it probably means different things for different projects but you know yeah. kind of what is what are people expecting when when z walks in what, are the, what they're expecting what they get <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I think a lot of I think some of the most important the most important part about innovation is right, asking the right questions. So how am I doing so far? Um, <laughs> you're doing great. Robert asked a good, good But if good you're question. but if you were to ask me, okay, I'm going to start getting into this different troublemaker mode. Okay, you don't want that. <laughs> no, um, but you know it's really it's it's like oh no you're not like oh why um, how do we solve X like how do we how do we create a better snack food but what's the actual why is snack food even appealing to us and can we get at the same yeah sense sensory you know the the effects in other ways or you know taking a step back yep. it's not a good example i told you i'm not good no example, it's, a, it's a great example <laughs> I've, I've actually i'm in the middle of this book called um the power of habit why we do the things we do in in life and business mm-hmm. Which uh, Charles Duhigg has been invited to the show, just so you know, um, the author. But it is exactly that, right? They talk about habits, both good and bad, and even the neuroscience that goes into how habits form. You know, because you're, you're basically what happens is your brain makes room for you to do new things, so it automates. You know, mm, yeah. c- certain things. So like, oh, I need a cigarette doesn't become like an effort anymore. It right. becomes or the, the example they use in the book was backing out of the driveway. Right. When you first learned how to drive, you were like checking the mirror, look, you know, turn and like make sure the steering wheel. And now you can just back out of the driveway. Yeah, super see, easy. My mother taught me don't back out of the driveway, you back into the driveway. Mm. Then you can make a quick getaway. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I know where they're going. They're going to the island of Moreau. Um, I don't. I just made it. Up. I meant to say Doctor Moreau, but anyway. It's funny you say that though, because I was actually watching uh, the Stephen Colbert show uh, the other night, and uh, I've heard of it. Really? Yeah. Stephen Col- Colbert is definitely invited here as well. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to do a shameless plug, <laughs> but um. Yeah, he had a guest on and he was talking about his book and he was actually talking about how the mind actually forgets mm. and how that's actually useful. Yes, I saw and that I was, one. Yep. Was, I was thinking was really the exact same thing. And, you know, you know, a woman who was, um, I guess, here at UCLA, they were nearby, they, they were, they've been doing some research on people who cannot forget yeah. things and you'd think at first that it's a wonderful it's uh, awesome. skill to be able to <laughs> yeah. remember exactly what you're doing at every moment every day no it'd just be absolutely maddening because Terrifying. you don't need to know the details it's, yeah. it's a big picture and, it, mm-hmm. and I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of paradoxes in entrepreneurship yeah. and innovation I think that uh, one of them is the need to both think in the big picture see the long term vision but at the same time be able to execute it at an absolute detailed level and just focus right. and just put everything else out you know yeah where and where do you start like do you start with the creative end product or do you start with the questions right like sometimes you know it's ooh let's let's cast a big creative vision and then fill in the tactical pieces or is it kind of or you know what is what is your process when you know when when you are tackling a new issue or a new opportunity well what's kind of interesting about the last decade 
well, up until um, when I left USC, uh, in the universities, we took a sometimes very contrarian approach because normally you learn in business school or wherever that you, you start with the opportunity and then you try to come up with a solution. And I, I'm still very much a um, proponent of that, but that's very much a more of like a, a cultivation, a farming kind of an approach where you're trying to cultivate these ideas right. that are going to be really good. When you have a, you know, like a university like USC or MIT and you have a billion dollars on the order of a billion dollars of research every year, wow. there's a huge, it's like ore. You're mining for nuggets. Yep. You don't need every single one of those ideas to be great. And it's the opposite where you start with, an, with, with the, the technology and then you figure out what are the applications for it. Yeah. And most people say, no, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Well, you're, when you're in a, have this amazing opportunity of riches where you have all this uh, innovation, yeah. there's tons of opportunities and applications. So the real trick is to connect those, well, connect so, those uh, dots. You, uh, with that, you kind of touch on the idea of collaboration. You know, breeding innovation, where mo- yep. where I think there was a period of time where innovation happened in a vacuum, mm-hmm. but now when you you know you've touched on a, a lot of entrepreneurs and that whole ecosystem of people just building things all mm-hmm. the time, and they haven't necessarily been launched into a marketplace. But you know, if I'm building a you know widget Y and Robert has you know an application that's proper for it, like let's come together and see what we have now, mm-hmm. and then you know um, a perfect example is the Ogilvy Innovation Lab is they'll work with new technologies, but they can apply them to, you know, the Ogilvy portfolio of mm-hmm. clients. Right. Right. So I'm all about leveraging and replicating and, you know, and that's the you know idea behind TEDx, but also other things that we had done. And I just, I love to see. So at, at uh, MIT, we created the, the Deshpande Center, to, um, which gave grants, proof of concept grants to faculty and students that wanted to advance their, their research into the market. What does Deshpande mean? I so, was wondering what so that... <laughs> the, the donor, Desh Deshpande, and his wife, Jayshree, they, uh, he, he was actually a very, he's been a very successful entrepreneur, founded Sycamore Networks, and he gave a large $20 million gift to MIT and founded the Deshpande Center. So, uh, yeah, and, and so, you know, I had the fortune to kind of help create, you know, there was a vision, but uh, help define the model and right. how this can actually work and, and, We've seen the model of this innovation center giving out these innovation grants um, and bringing in and using them as a magnet to bring together really amazing faculty and students and ideas and mentors from the outside business yeah. community. And that's been just replicated all around the world. Yeah, so it's it's like, just so really rewarding to see that. It's like the perfect formula for like for innovation. I don't want to keep – I know the show is called Innovation yeah. Crush, but we keep using right. the word. Um, so you're also a recovering skydiver. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, Obviously, you were successful because you're here. (laughs) Still successful so far. But I did have a little bit of an incident, actually. Uh, Did you? I did. Did you bounce? Did you do the Z bounce? Well, fortunately, I had a reserve parachute. Wow. No way. Mm -hmm. Eighth jump. Can you believe it? It was the final jump before I could go solo. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. and uh, Fail. yeah, and, and you know, I was with an instructor, but the moment you pull your parachute, your instructor keeps falling and you're slowing down a little bit, right. but it never opened. And I started spinning wildly. And fortunately, it was still while I'd been doing really intensive instruction because I knew I'd been practicing exactly what I do. But even still, it was so hard to yeah. lift my arms because the centrifugal force was so strong. Mm-hmm. It took about 10 seconds. And I, I don't even want to think about how far I dropped in that, in that time frame, but it was an incredible 9.8 rush. meters per second per second. That's <laughs> it how, was very- just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do the math. 
no. So, um, yeah, it was funny. And my mother, who was who was away, she loved to go with me, and um, uh, she would always take pictures of me, right? And my parachute was usually green and yellow, and so I landed with a red parachute this time. And she said, "You didn't tell me you were going to have a red parachute." She was all really, you know, upset. And I said, "That was not intentional." I, she, yeah. Nobody told me I was going to have a. <laughs> and I had this incredible, um, just really. Um, adrenaline rush, obviously, that made me excited and thrilled at the time. But then yeah. it, it made it really hard to come back. My first solo jump was the one right after yeah. I had that experience. Um, like the next day? Well, how, how long? No, was it? it was actually, <laughs> unfortunately, it was like three weeks. So yeah. it, it, by the time I was able to go back. So I was anxious. And I was I was down on myself. I was so down on myself for being nervous because I hadn't weirdly I hadn't been that nervous about jumping out of the airplane it's not jumping cool. out of the airplane for me that's scary it's the pulling the parachute that's when that's the moment of truth right oh because that's you that's know when you you're know safe when, or not exactly yeah <laughs> so um but there was a pretty famous person in the airplane with me who's known for his daredevil acts I'm not gonna say who it was and he was re- he was learning how to jump, skydive mm-hmm. he was really nervous and when I saw that I was I felt like you know what it's okay to be nervous was it Mr. T <laughs> no, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> Remember in 18, Mr. T used to always be scared to get in airplanes. Um, so anyway, <laughs> speaking of segways. Um, <laughs> no, uh, so my, actually speaking of segways in, in, in all seriousness, um, I think part of that like ability to take the leap, you know, to yeah. jump, right? To, to just mm-hmm. do that. Um, especially when you take on a project, I wanted to know what does it feel like when you actually get your clients or your business partners to jump with you? You know, what is that sort yeah, of, what is that feeling? You know, I really feel like for me, um, so because I've been on my own, this is my bearing my soul right now, but you know, like being on my own for a year and a half, just on this creative sabbatical, you know, I have some ideas on things that I want to work on, but have been really exploring and you know, I will admit that I have something in the back of my mind that I've wanted to try for a yeah. long time, and I've been kind of working on it in the background, but I've been dragging my feet. And I've um, and so I normally think of myself as being an extremely fearless person right. about certain things. Uh, and I find that the best way sometimes when I'm finally getting momentum is by not, not that I have to convince other people, but actually having other people that are also that are bought into the vision. And it harkens back to the first startup where we had three founders and – we, you know, let's say I'd be down one day, but then my other partner, my, one of my partners was like, no, 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 we figured out, you know, like get, make, make a, a solution to that problem or no, you know, we're, we're going to do great. And, right. and they've actually done studies that show that the more people up to five that you have in a startup founders, the more successful you're going to be. And I think a lot of that is balancing out that roller coaster. It's an absolute roller coaster. And let me tell you, people who start companies that they'll, they'll, so many people will give a talk about their successes, right? You only mm-hmm. ask successful entrepreneurs usually to, to tell their stories, right? And, you know, 20-20 hindsight, just, you're, first of all, you have survivor bias. You're only talking to someone who is successful. And then they love to just remember everything that they did right and how smart they were, right? Right. And They um, can't forget those things. No, <laughs> Back no, to our other exactly. study. <laughs> They're, you know... <laughs> You do not know, as experienced as an entrepreneur as you are, every time you take on a new, um, a new venture, a new idea, you don't know the outcome. If you knew the outcome and if it were, you knew it were going to be successful, people would have already done it, right? right? So you're taking that risk. So anybody who says they knew all along what they were, what, that they knew all along what they were doing is lying or they're completely fooling themselves. Right. Um, so I think that it's important for 
you know, entrepreneurs or entrepreneur wannabes to kind of realize that there's this entrepreneurial angst that you go through constantly of you don't know what's next. Yeah. Remember when we, when we launched our first um, product at, uh, with Stylus Innovation, the first startup, and actually it was, the, it was the second, there was the second product actually, the first one we had licensed, and this was the one that really kind of made us successful. We were at Comdex, a big computer show. The three, three founders, of, you know, three of us, looked at each other, we go, oh my God, what if nobody buys this product? And we said, oh my God, what if everybody buys this product? How do we fulfill it? How do right. we support it? Oh, what's going to happen? And then we looked at each other, we said, ha, huh, well, one day when we become millionaires, hmm, let's not forget this day that we, ha- that we had no idea what was going to happen right. next. And like we swore to each other that we're never going to forget that day because it's uh, you really don't you don't know what the outcome is. Freeze frame on the group high five. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> totally. No, that's I mean, that's that's actually I mean, that's, that's yeah, it is great because I think, you know, that entrepreneurial journey, I think there are certain like things you do learn on the, along the way, like you, you know, or you at least there was a guy named Oliver Bogner who was on the show. Um, and one of the points that he made was. He never did something just because, right? He always had like a goal in mind, yeah. right? Even though entrepreneurs don't necessarily know where you're going to end up. That's why I always think valuations are funny, right. just because you're like, yeah, yeah, tw- yeah, that's right, twenty million. Um, and it's based on some fact and some track record yeah. and some things like that. But at the end of the day, you 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 don't know. But I think good entrepreneurs also, you know, it's kind of like playing a game of basketball, right? Like you kind of know the fundamentals of yeah. of the game, but you just. And you, there's certain whether they're personality traits or practice because you've done it so many times before, or just certain things that kick in that kind of help to um, to foster that success or, right. or not or not success. And those definitely become more just um, you just you don't even think about those those right. things. And so you you work you f- you work on the innovations on top of that. I have a very good friend who's a professional skateboarder, and he talks about that about how I mean, you look at what he does. He invents. He's invented almost all the. Um, street skateboarding tricks out there, you know, and, and for him, a lot of those things, they're, they're just really easy. And right. so he just adds, he just adds on top of it. He, he links them together almost like language, right. right? Like little phrases and words and phrases. It's really interesting. Yeah. yeah well, it was funny. Like when people have a gift, right? There's one of, speaking of Z's, Jay-Z said that, um, uh, he said for a long time, he didn't realize that what he had was a gift because it came easy to him. Right. Right. And I, th- I think that happens with, you know, a lot of people who like, there are certain things that come natural to you and you go, well, okay. Like, That's why you mm-hmm. never want to take lessons, ski lessons or whatever lessons from someone who's really good at something because usually it comes so easy to them. They don't remember, or it's been so long that they're a beginner that they don't right. understand the things that you're struggling with. So that's sometimes one of the gifts of te- you know somebody who's a really good teacher is to so- somebody who can really break it down to the point where what what is it that you're struggling with and what is the misperceptions, right. what are the myths or you know, other things. That to you that point, I've, like mm-hmm. I feel like uh, you know in in a way I've become smarter as a parent yeah. because I have to go back to so many basics, especially a third grader. I'm like. Yeah. You know, whether it's um, social studies, you know, or we're talking about constellations or just a trick to remember, like to know how to do a story problem, you know, just to go back to those really rooted basics and revisit them is just from a. You know, thirty years later, or whatever. It makes you feel good. You actually learned something. Yeah. <laughs> I do know something. Yeah, exactly. Now, next year, fourth grade. Who knows? 
Um, why, why is it that when you're like, there's a certain point in life, early in life, where you think you know everything, and then you just feel like you're getting dumber and dumber as yeah. you get older, because you realize how much you don't know. <laughs> exactly. The only thing that we know fully is that we know nothing. Well, that's another entrepreneurial paradox, right? It's, this, guys, it's sort of... Oh, have you guys been watching Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a little bit humbling. Well, that, so that's one of the paradoxes of entrepreneurship, is it's like sort of this... Um, combination of both optimism and c- confidence and yeah. humility, right? Yeah. Because you need to have the persistence to just push forward and, and just see your idea through. And right. at the same time, you need to know when to stop. And when people are saying that's a really dumb idea, you know, sometimes you need to just keep pushing through. And there are other times you're like, wait, why is everyone saying this is a dumb idea? And they yeah. may be totally wrong. That might be why nobody else has tried this. But you need to get at the question of why do they think it's a dumb idea? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that was the our first startup, the software package that we came out with. We had surveyed 500 computer telephony experts on the idea that we had. We wanted to create this Windows-based computer telephony development tool, whatever that is, right? Like, right. whatever. So. I think I just we drooled a little bit. Sorry. Every single person, except for I think three or four of them, said that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And we're like, oh my God, what are we going to do next? Well, the truth is, um, th- we thought, we thought, we did it anyway because we realized that those people had a vested interest in keeping it as complex as possible and as inaccessible to other developers. Uh-huh. So what we did was we came out with a $500 tool, no, no runtime fees. Um, Totally accessible. Our sales of this product surpassed AT&T's product within 18 months in terms of volume. Wow. And so, of course, they don't want everybody in his right. brother or brother to be able to do this because that was their bread and butter. So when you think about why people are saying that's a yes. bad idea, then it can give you a little bit of a perspective. No, that's great. Yeah, because it, it, I mean, it, it's always, a, I mean, even whether it's a creative process or a marketing tactic or whatever, it's kind of like you always have to examine the pros and cons, the do's and don'ts, the feedback, you know, it's just, yep. a, it's a juggling act. Yeah, know? no doubt. Uh, when do you stop? When do you stop? Yes. What? I don't know. If you like <laughs> on that idea, like, is it when you, you retire? Is or it, you no. <laughs> when your heart stops. Uh, no, when, you know, when you're developing that idea, like it, maybe the feedback yeah, has been like, Oh, right, this, is, exactly. this is awesome. You know? And you're like, okay. I'm, when you you're, run out you're of fine. money and you've lost your house. <laughs> exactly. No. Like it's like I the jerk. Know. I mean, you know what it is? I think that, um, <sighs> that's a good question because it's a philosophical question. Right. But let me think back on the different examples. I think a lot of times I, I feel like, you know, two different perspectives. One is I think that the idea should evolve, right? So it's not that it's, it's not a binary thing. Like, oh, that's a good idea. That's a bad idea. Let's just stop doing it. Right. Take the feedback and make it better. Um, and the, the other one is um, I think that it, uh, sometimes you don't have, you know, it's not your only idea, right? It's not, it's not your last, it's not your last idea. It's not your only idea. And that's why I think actually the first, first sabbatical I took after the first startup was really hard for me because after six months, I was, of, you know, just wonderful, you know, it was vacation, yeah. whatever I want. Not only was I a little bit bored, because I really enjoy, I mean, not bored, but um, I enjoy having a purpose, right? But also, I was asking myself, am I still going to have the fire in the belly? Was that my last idea? Because it was my first idea, I had no right. idea if I could do it again. And now that I've done it many times, this sabbatical is going a lot better 18 years <laughs> later. Um, it's still challenging, yeah. you know? Like, in society, we... We ascribe a lot of value to people based on how busy they are, um, what title they have, you know, yeah. and, and it's and when you meet somebody at a party in the United States anyway, people will say, What do you do? Right? right. I don't have an easy 
elevator pitch. I'm doing a lot of stuff, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I got this. Uh, right, yeah. so I'm pretty busy. But, you know, it's not, it doesn't really tell, you know, who you are as a person. But it's hard to come to terms with that, right? Like, it took me about six months to feel okay with the fact that I don't have um, 100 emails coming in every day anymore. Of course, by the end of those six months, I started getting 100 emails a day right. again, again. So it's sort of a... Um, I you know I kind of got back into the swing of things pretty quickly, yeah. Uh, without meaning to, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's what just one of those things. It is kind of like, you know, when when you do the t- the kind of things you do as a service to the world, you know, and yeah. it is kind of project based, and you're going from one, you know, fundamentally a startup to another. Right. It's, it, you you've invest so much of your personal energy and emotion and things into the process, and once it's done, it's like you're you're meshed with it, right? You know, no doubt. it's no like doubt. it's like giving birth. Well, and I'm then not quite ready. Away. I mean, I think that's part of it is that I I feel like I only have so many in me, you know, in in a lifetime, and so I feel like I want to make sure that the next thing, if I'm really going to go, oh, you're in one thing, <laughs> you're endless. Well, this is the problem is. <laughs> By my not not wanting to get uh, too involved or committed to one thing, I end up getting overcommitted to many things. So, have you been married? I'm married. Oh, okay, all right. Just still am. Sorry, Robert. <laughs> he told me to ask he that earlier. Ta- he still tolerates me. <laughs> um, uh, well, no, I want. I was going to ask you this this idea of, I mean, the flip side of the elation that you feel when. Um, when the team gets it right, the yeah. freeze frame high five, and we're all in this together. And then I would imagine that there's a flip side to that where you go, you're in a room and you're talking to people, and it is not gelling, right? Be, because you're bringing a very different perspective. Uh, I, th- I think sort of a, um, a wide-eyed view of the possibilities and what needs to happen in order to make some of these things happen. Uh, just what are some of the hurdles that you face, you know, in some of the day-to-day things you've taken on? Um, and converting, right? Converting your, cause you have to be an evangelist for the idea. <laughs> well, I think that a good example is, um, so communications is a really important piece of innovation and it's not just important to just market an idea once you've already, um, created it, but it's about getting, getting the input yeah. and it's about also, and it's not just outside, but it's also inside your organization. So you need to make sure that everybody on the team is going along with you the whole way. And there's a, there's a lot of focus these days on design, right? But I think that there's two other pieces that people don't really focus on as much. One is the communication piece, and which is just as much about listening right. as talking. And the other one is this imagination piece. And it's kind of a virtuous cycle. So I feel like uh, you might communicate you get some ideas you're you're also creating this space for imagination so people can imagine this new future right and it creates a space for that idea so that then you can put that idea in there or it can help de- they can help develop it so it's that Im- imagination piece is really important and then once that imagination piece is activated then you can design what makes sense and then based on the design then you you know are communicating it's a sort of virtuous cycle in an entre- in an entrepreneurial environment purely a startup you um, have to communicate, obviously, outside the world and within your team. In I've been in environments where I had an entrepreneurial team within a very complex bureaucratic organization yeah. in academia, so both both universities, and any large company is similar. And I think, the, so this is maybe another topic, but large companies are completely underestimated in their in their value and role in innovation. 
Okay, so I just parking lot, right? But I think yeah. it's really important. But uh, but it's really hard because you know I had to manage up as much as I had to manage down. And in large organizations, um, everything's measured, and and that's the idea of the big. The bigger a company gets, the more it wants to become more efficient. And how you drive efficiency is based on trying to get all of the um, fat out of the system. But in doing that, you're missing a lot of the real creative energy and the different ideas right. that, that are creating the innovation. So um, innovation and entrepreneurship are both very wasteful processes in a sense. I mean, think about in entrepreneurship. You have all these startups. Most of them fail. Right? Right. And then the, some of them, and maybe not even the best ones, survive. Um, so I think that that, that, uh, that is really incompatible with a larger organization in general. So – so the, usually, big companies are looking for ways of measuring innovation, and you can't really yeah. measure it that well. No, you have to so let you have to let people play. Like you have to let yeah. you have to allow playtime. Yep. You know, and you never know. Like I mean, you watch a kid. You know, you watch a kid play. You're like, oh wow, you made a boat out of those things. Like, right. but you know, when you bought the set of you know, yeah. uh, Lincoln Logs or whatever, you weren't thinking like. Yep. Now and go so, build a boat. Unfortunately, you know, I was there was a lot of trust and and the. Um, you know, the person who had hired me at USC, who became the president, um, you know, he, he trusted me a lot. So I right. had a lot of um, opportunity to play. And say, same at MIT. I mean, MIT is an incredibly uh, a play, a place that's really, you don't think of it as play, but, but you can, I mean, a place that where you can take apart a, a cop car and put it on the roof of the dome and then not get in trouble. But in fact, they celebrate you and right. they put you in a book that they sell in the gift shop. In the know, Harvard and Yale, like, don't they, don't they yeah, do that? Yeah, the Harvard-Yale games, yeah. right. So the, that, that type of, the hacking, they call it, you know, mentality. It's, right. it's all about play. It's all about, as long as no one's getting hurt, yes. it's great. Yeah. Well, I guess I won't hurt you again, Robert. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> <you>. <laughs> um, I'm going to quote you. Uh-oh. Uh, Do I have to defend it? Yes. <laughs> what does this mean? No, uh, but are we cheating this next generation out of viable careers? Not everyone can be a successful founder. Given that most startups fail in five to ten years, will we have a generation of self-employed thirty-somethings that are cha- that were chasing their dreams, but were left with not much more than a few failures under their belts? <laughs> um, and it kind of is a throwback also to the conversation with Oliver Bogner, right? And he's Forbes under thirty under thirty, just turned twenty-one. You know, listed with Mark Zuckerberg as one of the most creative millennials in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but this kind of speaks to that idea of life experience and, mm-hmm. and things like that and their value like after the failure. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that I, I, I wrote that as a provocation. Obviously I don't feel like, I don't actually believe that student, you know, young people shouldn't have entrepreneurial experiences. But the point being that I think we're maybe selling them a bill of goods that, that might take them down the wrong path. And I think that I, I can't tell you how many young people have come up to me especially in college, saying, I really want to start a company. I don't have an idea. How can I get an idea? I'm like, no, you got it all wrong. You don't start a company because you want to start a company. You start a company because you have a burning idea inside of you. And so the good news is, so we did a study um, a few years ago of successful entrepreneurs, uh, high-growth, high-impact entrepreneurs in the United States. We surveyed 500 of them, found that the average age when they started their company was 40. Really? Yeah. (laughs) So most wow. people, I should have asked you what you would have guessed, but I, yeah, <laughs> most people say, you know, I probably like, would say like 40. 
Yeah, right. Put a moon spot on. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've got Most some people think when I when I talk about the whole age thing, they think, oh, you're just trying to say it to be nice to older people. Right? No, I mean truly. And they had significant industry experience when they started their companies, and so. It's only through having a job, let's say, in manufacturing that you realize that there's a supply chain problem. Or, you know, maybe you have, in, you know, you're working on some sort of a car issue and you have a certain insight into the way the car industry works and that it could actually work better. Um, some of these ideas are not sexy to 21-year-olds. They have no clue about why this would be interesting. Right. Um, when, when you're 21... What's your experience? Your world experience is much narrower. You may have great ideas. So, so to be fair, the... Um, you know, you, you will have a different perspective, right? So there's a question of what is more innovative? Is it applying the experiences of somebody who's been, who's lived for 30, 40, whatever yes. years, and or is it the new perspective? And I think it's really the combination. So it's not one or the other, but just look at WhatsApp. Yeah. That, was, that was created by 30-somethings that have had experience at Yahoo, you know, and they didn't do too badly. So <laughs> $19 billion. Yeah, yeah not too badly. So, <laughs> but I think, uh, so anyway, the point being that um, I think it's, great to encourage students there is a problem globally and and there has been a problem in not valuing entrepreneurship as a valid career path and so i think globally i think we really need to encourage that and i think it's a great thing now that finally there's this buzz i'm afraid that there's so much buzz that policymakers expect overnight jobs as a result of it um they're just expecting things and then they're counting the startups they're not looking at the actual long-term impacts of these things and it takes a long time to build these ecosystems Mm -hmm. silicon valley has been in progress for decades and decades. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that happens overnight. And so, yeah, I just think that it's a a problem. I I feel like students and young people get stressed. One thing I would tell them is don't be stressed. You're, you know, you have your whole career to start your company. Maybe the first step is if you don't have an idea, work for a startup, get a sense of what a startup, how a startup works. Um, Work for an established company because they have certain processes and certain things that you may decide is absolutely the way you don't want to do it, but they also, you learn from that right. as well. And, um, but if you're over 40, you should be stressed. Absolutely not. It's over. <laughs> there are twice as many, there were twice as many successful founders over 50 than under 25. And there's a lot of people these days, I think, especially with aging baby boomers, um, getting aged out of their jobs and feeling like they need to stay in the workforce or getting laid off. Yeah. What are they going to do now? Um, I, I saw, I'm trying to remember the statistic, but it was something pretty significant. It was over 25%, maybe 30% of people that were kind of going into retirement or coming back out of retirement right. to start companies. It was something similar, especially when the economy tanked and people were being laid off. Yeah. It was like, I think it was 25% of executives who had been laid off started companies. Right. You know, um, that might have been the statistic, yeah. yeah. The only thing about that is it sort of also parallels some of the countries that are less innovative focused where the, these are startups that are created because of need as opposed to um, desire. You know, like right. this. So when we, we surveyed these uh, entrepreneurs as well and said, what, what motivated you to start the company? A lot of times it was, I had this idea, the only way that I, the, that I can actually see it in the marketplace was to leave my company because it was just not the right place for it. But- if you're out of a job and like, okay, now I'm going to have to start a company, it's this, um, it's not the right place to be starting yes. from. Yeah, no, but I 100% agree. So. I could discourage it. But, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. It's like, it, I mean, uh, we recently interviewed Kyle Cease, and I think I told you about mm-hmm. that that conversation, but, you know, it's kind of like, don't start from the place of lack, right? Mm-hmm. You start from the place of like, where, like, where do you want to be? And, and yeah. even asking that in, in, 
the more positive light and as far as like what mm-hmm. what am I passionate about what am what you know what um what is that burning desire in me right. and not like what is the need like oh I need to pay my rent or my mortgage <laughs> it's like, well okay. here's the other thing is so what if every single person in the country started their own company how's that a good idea yeah <laughs> who's yeah. gonna work for these companies <laughs> <laughs> it's called um was it collaborative community the the like the ubers and the washios of the world it's like everybody can you know well that's kind of where we're going in some ways everybody has their own boss their own brand freelance everyone's freelance especially in yeah. la that's what it feels like right but it's um and, and no doubt that's the direction it's going and with the millennials graduating and realizing that the job market is incredibly tight and it's a huge percentage of millennials not getting the jo- jobs right out of college, going right. back and living with their, um, what do they call it, adult adolescents or something? <laughs> They're going back to the, live with their parents because Kidults. they can't afford it, you know? But that's not new. Um, like so to me, to, like, no. and I don't know what the numbers are behind it, but I feel like, but I have friends that you know I graduated with from from school, and like some of them went home. Like, well, you know, yeah, just, but the numbers are staggering now, and I think that I think that um, younger people, they if they don't already figure this out, they better learn that they, they need to take a more entrepreneurial view of themselves. So. I don't think that necessarily everybody has to start their own company, but I think that they need to think of themselves as sort of a, a company or an entrepreneurial, like a startup of one. Yeah. And start from that point and say, well, who am I? Yeah. I, I just, you know, I don't want to get too far, go too far down this road. Like, I, you know, when I went to school when I was 17, right, my freshman year, I had no, I didn't know who I was. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And right. very few people do. Like, some, there are some people that are like, yeah, when I was six years old, I, all I dreamt of was flying planes, you know? <laughs> Um, but you know, for me that, that wasn't, I want to uh, be a magician at one point. <laughs> right. Well, you're making magic happen on this show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, um, Davos, you just yep. got back. I did. Um, it was a pretty wild experience. It was, um, you know, you have, uh, world leaders for, you know, coming in, buzzing in on the helicopters all week long and coming in, um, Sky doing their little, I yeah, know, uh, <laughs> And then, you know, the real, a lot of the real action happens out of the Congress Center and the back rooms and, you know, suites in the hotels and who knows what's going on in some of those places. Sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm considered, you know, an academic. I brought in innovation experts, et cetera. We're brought in as entertainment in a way. You know what I mean? <laughs> Dance. <laughs> right. And, no, it's, I mean, and, and I think that um, some of the sessions that I led were incredibly popular. And I think that, you know, people were um, really enjoy the, uh, more interactive. So what's really neat about some of the sessions that you don't hear about. So you can see the live stream in Davos, which is you'll see Rouhani speak or John Kerry speak or whoever. But um, And those are the sort of very large speakers. Then you have these sessions that are much more interactive where you do workshops right. and you actually work with other really fascinating people to, to try to develop new ideas and to advance ideas. And those are really fun. I really enjoy those. And those are the ones that I'm usually involved in. Um, and then you have these parties and after parties all night long that are just uh, nutty. And uh, Mary J. Blige played the Google party for like 150 <laughs> people. Yeah. Nice. Then you have other artists who it's like, who are they again? And they and they the poor things, you know, they're probably paid a lot of money to fly to Davos, and they're you know like, all right, I'm just getting paid for this. Yeah, like kind of strumming along on the guitar. Right? Exactly. <laughs> But uh, and like nobody in the audience knows who they are, even though they used to be pretty famous. You know. <laughs> so what? Like, what are some of the? You know, just an example maybe of some of the tangible things that come out of the World Economic Forum. Like, is it just kind of like let's get together and you know, is it like summer camp, <laughs> or is it like is or is you know, 
is it tied to a, a goal or measurement or, or well, you know, hard results? So like for me, I, I had some meetings with um, you know ministers and um, and policymakers in some countries and helping them maybe with thinking about entrepreneurship, for example. So I'm the I'm the chair of the Global Agenda Council for fostering entrepreneurship, um, and they. Uh, the, the idea is to really help, you know, s- stimulate and encourage entrepreneurship around the country. So that's right. part of my role. And then leading some sessions that would then end up leading to, sometimes they lead to, to um, they lead to reports. Sometimes just the fact of bringing people together right. is really important. So you bring people together from very different and sharing these ideas. And then of course there's deals that are happening at a more, you know, global scale. And so that I would not be privy to. <laughs> <laughs> you will, don't worry. Um, so the show is called Innovation Crush. Um, is there any innovation currently that you're crushing on? Like you think is something out there that either a company or a person or a trend you've seen that you're like that is bananas. Yeah, I mean, I just I, what, what I'm the most passionate about is the idea of how to tap into talent in new ways. Mm-hmm. So it's not a technological innovation as much as now that. Um, Everything's so global, hyper-connected. You have this opportunity. I mean, everything from, uh, you know, um, so, I don't know, Mechanical Turk is it has its negatives, right? But just the, right. the fact that you can, in a way, commoditize labor in such a crazy way. But then on the other hand, you have people that you can tap into the knowledge of, of people. So that's obviously crowdsourcing. I, I call it crowdscaling when you do right. things like, look at GoPro. Who's who would be a better marketing force than the people who use your product and put these unbelievably insane videos online? Right. You know, base jumping, whatever. You don't have to pay anyone to base jump. They're doing it for you. And they're putting the videos online and they go viral. So uh, so I think that to me, that's the most exciting idea is new ways of um, of harnessing talent and empowering them to move your mission and your ideas forward. That's great. Uh, Is there any trend that you wish would go away like selfies or? Or, oh my God. Me, or me and Robert. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, off the top of my head. I mean, so for me, it's not it's not an innovation, but it's more just pride. I think that pride is one of the biggest innovations of innovation of enemies of innovation and enemies of peace and happiness on the world in the world. So I love that. I'd love to see that go away. Um, I'm, my pride is waning now that <laughs> ego, you know. <laughs> ego's bad. Um, so if I want to cyber stalk you, or if our listeners want to cyber stalk you, how can they do? Where they, where can they find you on the interwebs? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Christina Holly. That's spelled K R I S Z T I N A H O L L Y. Got it. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone, that has been another awesome, awesome conversation on Innovation Crush. We thank you for stopping by, Z. Thank you. And uh, we will talk to you all next time. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the Internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleisinger, Schleisinger, I've been friends with her for 10 years, one of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore because it's here and it's funny and I love you. 
A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.